You're listening to 3CR Radio. And
or guy James Whitworth is a Sydney-based artist who's working on a new exhibition called Enough of Your Nonsense. And I began our interview with Guy James by asking him how Enough of Your Nonsense explores the premise that all oppression is linked. Oh, James, hello. Um, start off with start off with an easy question. Why don't you, good Lord? Um, well, I'm going to simplify that answer for you a little bit um, and just say, you know, in my experience, if someone, if a person is is very is is is, is possible, if if a person is racist, there's a good chance they're going to be. Um, homophobic. There's a good chance they're going to be misogynistic. There's also a good chance that they're going to have lots of other prejudices that have indulged and allowed the prejudice that they 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 carry the initial the initial ones that you notice. Um, so yeah, I, I, to, to to oppression is a very big word. Oppression is a very big word and it's a very powerful word. And I think oppression is on a sliding scale. And with people, people can be slightly misogynistic. They can be slightly racist um, in a way that you might not really notice those things until you sort of really get to know somebody and you really scratch under the surface. But, yeah, in my experience, um, one often leads to another and then another and then another. It's interesting because some of the people that you've been so vividly painting lately, like Tony Abbott and Pauline Hanson, their policies have certainly been accused of being oppressive and racist. Oh, and lots of other words as well. Lots of other words that we possibly should not mention on community radio. Um, yes, um, you're talking about um, um, uh, for for everyone at home, for for, for listeners at home. Um, I have a a series that I'm doing at the minute, and I call it the Corrupt Nostalgia series, which is a very grand. Uh, title, but um, uh, to explain to listeners, although it's always sort of strange talking about art on the radio, um, there's a series that I've been doing, and it kind of takes that sort of that child's childlike sort of learning sort of module, sort of you know the coloured sort of blocks of A is for apple and B is for ball, and basically what I've been doing is I've been applying that to um, to politicians, but not just politicians, sort of you know um, pop culture sort of. Um, you know, social and sort of political sort of well-known faces. And yes, for Pauline Hanson, I really, I sort of really thought about, I thought about this because I didn't really want to attach a negative necessarily to a woman because I feel, you know, women do have a harder time in the media, but there was no way that I couldn't not go in the series for R is for Racist uh, because really to me, Pauline Hanson is... The epitome and the sort of the, the, the you know, sort of the, the, the clan leader of racism in Australia is the truth of it. And then Tony Abbott. Um, Tony, I kind of I took a bit bit more of a personal sort of um, uh, sort of uh, take on, on Tony. And I went for V is for vile. And, you know, James, I love the word vile. I do. Vile is such a good word. It's just such a guttural sort of v- v- vile, vile word. Um, and it, it sounds like it is. And, yeah, with Tony, because I just felt he's so complex and, to me, repugnant, I just had to go with vile for Tony. But there's there's lots of there's lots of other people within that series, and they're not all negative at all. Um I always struggle with saying her her surname, um, and maybe you can help me out. But Greta Thunberg, Greta Thunberg, Greta Thunberg, but Greta anyway. You know her, the teenage activist. I went with F is for fierce. So there's some there's some sort of negatives and there's some positives within that that series of paintings. Um, and I actually sort of painted in the 
the fierce on on Greta's panel in rainbow uh, colours because there's actually six letters and there's six colours in the traditional rainbow flag, not the the new modern um, all encompassing one, but um, but the traditional rainbow flag. Um, and I coloured those letters in in that colour because to me Greta really does hold a lot of queer power. Um, and I'm not speculating on her sexuality at all, and it, I'm just not going there, and it doesn't bother me what her sexuality is. That's not even, you know, one of the sort of in the top ten sort of most interesting things about her. But um, to me, queer power is about, you know, sort of shaking the system and really sort of, you know, understanding and really operating within what anarchy is and really about not not worrying too much about what's expected of you, but being driven by what you want and what drives you, you know? Have you been thinking a lot about anarchy lately? I know there's lots of talk about the link between Black Lives Matter in the US and anarchy. Why is anarchy coming up for you as a political concept at the moment? Is that because of the times? Um, Not at all. Anarchy is a thing that I relate to as... Very much a sort of, you know, you don't really think about sort of these sort of these powerful words, these powerful sort of isms who make us who we are. And for me, I always identify as being queer. I, when people sort of ask me about my sexuality, I talk about my sexuality. I don't ever really use or I very rarely use the gay word. I tend to use the Q word, the queer word, word a lot more because I feel a lot more queer than I am gay for lots of different reasons. Um, and um, for me being anarchistic and embracing what anarchy is, is very much connected to and reflected in what it's like to be queer and to identify um, as, as, as queer. Anarchy is one of those things that it, I mean, I, I was born in the, I was born in the late sixties. So people can work out my age from that. Um, and I remember sort of my sisters, my elder sisters sort of in the mid seventies, sort of really experiencing, um, and dabbling in punk and this idea, the idea of anarchy to me is very connected with the punk ideal and the punk ethos where it really is about shaking up what isn't working and stripping back veneers of, of um, false truths and really getting into the nuts and bolts of society and how society should work rather than how society is working. And and yes, that that absolutely for me connects massively to the Black Lives Matter movement, um, which is which is the thing that I thoroughly support and I'm very very much about. And you know that that's very much reflected in my in my art in my art practice. Um, but yeah, anarchy. Anarchy is one of those things where it's 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 an underlying thing in my life. It's not just a it's not just an accessory that I pull out of a drawer when I when I feel it might suit, it might match my outfit. It is something that I kind of really live by and really just have as a baseline to what I'm about as a person, but also about what I create as an artist. Of course, you grew up in the northeast of England, and it sounds like you had a musical and an artistic awakening in the late 70s, early 80s, which, of <laughs> course, was the time of Thatcherism in the UK. How did that influence your politics? Oh, massively. Um, I grew up, yeah, like as you say, in the northeast of England, but very much in the working class sort of um, bits of, of – actually, where I grew up is Northumberland, uh, which is the biggest county in the UK, but with the smallest population. Um 
uh, or it was at the time. Um, Thatcherism to me represents a lot of different things. I was in the Northeast when she when she basically declared war on the miners and on trade unions and really sort of a lot of people really, really, really struggled at that point. And for me, it was an awakening to realizing that actually the the, the ideal, the utopian ideal that politicians work for people, that the politicians represent and work for the masses, that's a lie. They do not. A lot, most, most, most politicians are really very, very self-serving and they're out for what they can get for themselves. And, you know, a lot of us are, a lot of us are in this world. You know, we all want food on our tables. We all want the comforts that we believe that we're entitled to. Um, but that was the first time that I realized, and I was quite, I was, I was a young child, but I realized, I, I remember looking around and seeing, you know, my, my sister, um, my, my sister who's four years older than me, um, in my early teens, I remember she um, literally couldn't afford to have food on her table. She was literally depending on handouts because she was, she was married to a minor and for a good year there was just no income, there was no social security, there was no social sort of, um, uh, you know, fallback net provided for them um, during, during uh, one of the minor strikes. There was a few different ones. Um, yeah, that, 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 that did really shake me. I've never really thought about that in that way actually until now, but yes, it did very much shake me and, and shape my politics. Because that was an incredible time. I mean, they were, they were watershed moments politically in the UK, weren't they, where the UK went from being a welfare state to one of, you know, uh, Thatcherism and Reaganomics, if you like. Mm. You know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna refer. It's kind of funny that we're talking about this. This was not on my um my idea of what we're going to talk about today, James. But that's fine. Um, like all good therapy sessions, we'll just go where it goes. Um, uh, I had I had a moment a few years ago um in the UK where I was in a relationship for a good few years with um uh, a doctor, and Margaret Thatcher was one of his patients. And I remember sitting outside Margaret Thatcher's house in one of the squares, I probably shouldn't say which square, in um, in London, waiting for him to sort of go in and sort of do some business and then come out again. And I remember sitting there and as, as a white man, I get to feel very, very safe in lots of situations that people of colour don't. And I remember standing, sorry, sort of sitting inside this car and there were two policemen standing outside flanking Margaret Thatcher's front door. And I remember I, that was that was the point, or one of the points where I really started to understand privilege and understand my own privilege and understand how um, my life has changed and how sort of I'm now in a position of privilege and I'm now really, as an artist but also as just an individual, um, in a position where I get to use my privilege to benefit other people and get to do that thing and I, I have, a, I, have a, I had a book come out last year and the book is called signs of a struggle um and it's available in all good bookshops um uh and I talk about this a little bit in that book of um you know the ladder of privilege and you know sort of how near the top of the ladder we are how near the bottom of the ladder we are and it's all depends on different things like you know sort of age physical ability um ability to work um you know skin tone gender, sexuality, all of that kind of stuff. And I talk about in the book about how it's 
to me, it's really super important that where I am on the ladder, I'm moving aside and I'm actively pulling up people who are on that ladder underneath me and that I actively encourage other people who are not as privileged as I am in society to to move up that ladder. And as, as, as much as I'm able to push people up above me on that ladder. And I think that's a really important thing. And, 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 and yeah, it's funny that we're talking about Thatcher because, um, you know, it's just one of, because of, Oh, that that speech that awful man did the other day. I can't remember his name. Um, of talking about sort of you know how um, Thatcher and Reagan. Um, uh, what's his name? I can't remember his name. It's gone. I've had a blank. But but I was reading about sort of um, you know uh, Thatcher is actually trending on Twitter at the moment, and it's just funny how these things come full circle to remind us of things that we may have forgotten. Three C you're listening to an interview with Guy James Whitworth on 3CRs in your face. One of the people that you've been painting has been Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, mm-hmm. who is, you know, a, a class warrior. Tell us about your connection with her. Um, I think she is just awesome. Um, I, I, I painted her actually. She was she was she's new to the new to the the group of the um of the corrupt nostalgia people. Um, but for her, I used the letter F, and F is for future, and I really feel like she is the future. People like her who, well, politicians like her who 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 have actually grown up in the real world, and their sense of self is based on experience rather than privilege. That has to be the future. That has to be. You know, sort of, we have to do a bit of a 180 in in society and start voting these people in. You know, um, in 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 this um, series that I'm talking about, which, by the way, if anybody's listening, they can go on to Instagram and they can have a look on my Instagram page. Um, uh, my Instagram is my name, which is Guy James Whitworth, and they can see the the images that we're talking about here. Um, in, in that same series, I have H is for how who um that that's donald trump donald trump's face is on that panel and it really when i was sort of painting his panel i i, I had lots of different words that i could use as, as i'm sure as i'm sure you and lots of listeners would understand but i didn't want it to be i i, I wanted I, the, the, the 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 word that really just came to my mind was how how did he get there how did he get to this point where he becomes one of the most powerful men in the world, but because he's managed to convince people that he's there for them, you know, and that's to me, um, it's it, it's very sort of uh, there's a depth to his personal and political corruption, and there's. Yeah, it's a bizarre thing to me. It's just a bizarre thing. It's it's a thing that, that that there's so many more questions than I have answers for. So yeah, so that panel with Donald Trump has the word "how" and a question mark on it. You're often described as an LGBTIQ artist, and that's something that you've pushed back against. Tell us why. Oh, I just I don't think that art should really have too many um, classifications to it. With 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 my art, I really try and do it so it's it's very open to interpretation. And 
I do it so when people look at paintings, I just, I just finished a, a really big painting, um, which is not part of this series at all. It's part of a different thing. Um, I, I have an exhibition uh, that opens in at the, start, the first week in, in September here in Sydney and at the M2 gallery, and it's called Enough of Your Nonsense. And it's really examining what's what's been happening in my head, but then a lot of people's heads also in the past 12 months, because the past 12 months, as I'm sure everyone can agree, it, it, it's been a lot. There has been a lot going on there. And one of the paintings that I did is, uh, it's a painting called Gold Dust Woman. And again, this is on my Instagram. And it's a painting of my friend Mel. And she, um, it's basically a painting of her in gold. And it's very much sort of in the style of Gustav Klimt and a, a painting that I really love called Flaming June. Um, and it, it, it's, it's made up of lots of different, lots of different reference points from lots of different artists and lots of different paintings. And, and I purposely did a lot of different things within that painting, which, uh, you know, youngsters call them Easter eggs. Now youngsters call these things that are, you know, sort of, um, discoverable and are clues to sort of other things or other ideas that they're called Easter eggs. And there's lots of Easter eggs within this painting. And one of the things that I did was one of the many cushions that Mel is reclining back upon, and Mel is a woman of colour, um, it has a Union Jack um, printed onto it. And that was one of those things that I really wanted people to look at and consider and consider the relevance and the placing and the you know, the questions around that Union Jack and what that stands for, what what colonialism stands for, what sort of, you know, what that means when they see that, the emotion that they have. I, I, I want my work to be really open to interpretation by lots of people. And I think when you say, when, when you know, sort of you limit or label anyone as a an artist of colour, a female artist, um, an, uh, you know, sort of a, um, an elder artist, you you add something onto that description, which also um, is a reductive thing. It can, it can, it can take away as much as it adds. And realistically with art, we should all, all the time, I think, just be open to, uh, to, to, to an open interpretation of art. It should really be a very personal thing of what this piece of art means to me. What does it make me think of? And, and with the corrupt nostalgia series, I, I've been, loving that that really does and people can check this on facebook or on instagram it really kicks off conversation around what political figures mean to us individually or what they don't mean and it, it just creates this conversation which is a very open and very healthy conversation which i really love it when art does that you're a, a committed vegan. Tell us how your veganism has influenced your art. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that you're like a committed vegan. Um, I am very much a committed vegan. I am. Uh, I've been vegan. I've been vegan off and on since my early twenties. Um, I've al- I've always been vegetarian. Um, I slip in between. I've always slipped in between vegetarianism and veganism ever since I was about nine. And where I grew up was a very sort of rural, sort of farm, sort of. Um, you know, there are lots of farms in sort of where I grew up, and and I just made that connection very early on between animals in a field and meat on my plate, and I just didn't like what that was about. So I just never, I never really sort of once I sort of bit, once I was able to make choices, I never um, ate meat. 
Um, and I've been vegan now for about, I'm going to say about eight or nine years this time. Um, uh, and it's so, it's, it's so much more easier now, you know, sort of I always struggled before sort of, you know, going traveling and doing things and being a vegan can just be really problematic because, you know, um, hidden milk products, all of that kind of stuff. Um, well, uh, yeah, my partner and I, I think um, you interviewed my partner a few months ago for a project that he and I have called No Meat May. Um, and that's a thing, that's sort of a, an annual initiative where we try and challenge people to give up meat or try and give up animal products for the month of May. Um, and again, people can go online and they can sort of do a little bit of research about that. But that's that's been an amazing thing. And I think with sort of what's been happening over the um, the past few months, you know, with COVID and the sort of, um, I can never say this word, but zoonological, zoonological diseases, um, you know, diseases that, that pass from animals through the food chain into humans. I think a lot of people are beginning to wake up and realise that actually, you know, factory farming and sort of how we have been living for the past few decades is actually really not that healthy. And if we keep living in the way that we're living, then there's not going to be a good outcome. And a lot of people are turning to a more plant-based diet, if not a totally plant-based diet. And um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of really good. I, I, I feel like No Meat May is, it's a very gentle and very informative form of activism. Um, and, you know, really activism on any level is really just about sort of, you know, um, bringing ideas out into the world and sort of, you know, sort of showing people around you uh, what your views are and how you choose to live and sort of explaining and educating people around other ideals. And, and yeah, I think No Meat May does that very, very positively. And and just to refer back to quickly to your earlier question, if you know, sort of what is anarchy to me? What does anarchy mean to me? Well, um, with No Meat May, we try and sort of have a little bit of a punk ethos to that. We try and sort of have a little bit of a um, anarchistic sort of, uh, ideal to it all of you know don't don't worry too much what people think of you follow your own path and do your own thing um so yeah so it all sort of it all it all ties in you know sort of who I am and what I'm about what I create and what I put energy into it all sort of ties in I think in a, in a, in a rough kind of way. God James Whitworth thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. Thank you James I do I do feel like I had the talking stick a lot just then I feel like I did babble but thank you so much to you and thank you so much to everyone who listened in. 
Assassination Collective there, with Liz Crash on lead vocals. Capital Decay. The Queen Victoria Women's Centre is calling all craftivists to join us and make a fuss. Make a Fuss is a crowdsourced, craftivist project looking for submissions on the theme of women's silence. If you've experienced a time when you didn't want to make a fuss, why not get crafting and make some noise? For more information, go to qvwc.org.au and click on Make a Fuss. Submissions close August 19th. Queen Victoria Women's Centre is a 3CR supporter.
And that was Patty Smith with Soul Kitchen. 3CR. Well, Jesse Jones is the editor of queer news publication The Pink Advocate in Queensland. And I began our interview with Jesse by asking him about issues for the queer community in Brisbane during the pandemic. One of the big groups that I've done a lot of work with has been sex workers. A lot of sex workers within the queer community and, of course, we've been shut down for about three months in Queensland and in most of Australia. So many, many people have lost their income and had to look at Centrelink or look at charity to keep themselves and their family fed and housed over the last few months. And people within that group have been, uh, groups like migrant sex workers have particularly had trouble accessing those assistances. So that's one group that's been really hard hit by the pandemic. Also within the queer community are hospitality and the arts. A lot of us represented in those areas of employment, so many people have lost work, of course, as those venues shut down a couple of months ago. So those are um, some of the major groups, I think, that have been impacted. Where is law reform at in Queensland for the sex worker community? We've just recently finished um, quite a lot of lobbying of the state government to allow sex workers to go back to work following the lockdown. For a long time, it looked like we basically weren't going to be included in the go-back-to-work plan. Uh, And my work with the sex worker organisation that I'm associated with was just call after call from people for months asking, when can we go back to work? And the answer was, not yet, and we don't know. So it took quite a lot of pushing to get the sex industry included in that plan. But what we want in the longer term is full decriminalisation of sex work because at the moment the laws in Queensland are very restrictive in how sex workers could operate and private sex workers in particular are bound by really strange restrictions on advertising and limits on how we work in terms of uh, not being able to do simple things like put in a phone call to a colleague to let them know that you've left somebody's house safely just basic stuff that people do to keep themselves safe that's banned by the law and the the answer to a lot of sex worker safety issues really just is decriminalisation and treating the industry like any other workplace and allowing people to go about it like any other business. New South Wales has got one of the best models for sex work, which is regulated more or less like any other business, and we'd like to see similar in Queensland. We've been pushing quite heavily for that for some time. It sounds like Queensland has some of the most repressive laws against sex workers in the country. Yeah, it's really not great. Um, Some of the other states have got fairly shocking laws as well. Um, I've had workers in Victoria tell me that they would almost prefer to work somewhere where it's outright illegal to be a sex worker because it's easier than working around the laws and restrictions that exist. It's very contentious, but we are pushing for decriminalisation around Australia and hopefully we'll get there. Are you seeing much evidence of homelessness within the community and domestic violence? Not that I've seen directly. It's definitely a worry, definitely a concern at the best of times. And at the moment, with social isolation, um, people have been forced into, uh, you know, staying at home with family and whether that's family that they're out to necessarily or domestic violence situations that they've been having to stay in has definitely been a concern. And I believe that um, counselling services have had like an uptick everywhere in calls from people about those sorts of issues over the last couple of months. Of course, you're the editor of The Pink Advocate in Brisbane. Tell us about the publication. Well, we're a relatively new 
very small so far um, LGBTIQ community publication based here in Brisbane, but uh, we report on national and international issues. So I've spoken to people from around Australia on different stories already, and there's some good stuff coming up as well. I'm really looking forward to featuring. Tell us about what you've got featured in this week's paper. There's a, a fascinating story about hepatitis C, for example. Yeah, yesterday was World Hepatitis Day. And this is something that I always follow a little bit because I used to work in the hepatitis field and I still work in sexual health and bloodborne viruses in one of my other roles. Um, hepatitis, viral hepatitis has really changed quite a lot in Australia and in the developed world. Over the last few years, cases have been dropping and people have been able to cure hepatitis C in particular with new drugs that have been developed and become available. So that's been really exciting to see. And uh, government and hepatitis organisations are saying that we're looking to be on track for even perhaps eradicating hepatitis C within Australia in the next 10 years, which is absolutely thrilling to see. Another story in Pink Advocate I found absolutely fascinating was a Victorian story that zero cases of chlamydia were diagnosed in Victoria in June. What's what's going on there? That's right. Absolutely unprecedented. There's been massive drops around the country in diagnosed STIs in the last couple of months. Uh, the lowest, one of the lowest was zero cases of chlamydia in Victoria, and there was, I think, zero cases of gonorrhea in the ACT in the same time period. Uh, the only thing that the scientists are out on at the moment is whether that's less people hooking up and having sex or just less people getting out and getting tested. Uh, but at any rate, fewer cases, great to see. Absolutely. You mentioned you do other work in the bloodborne viruses field. Tell us about that. I work as a peer educator in the um, a sex worker area and also in a peer testing role in STIs and HIV. They're both really cool roles. They allow me to work with people in the community and be really hands-on with helping people, which is great. And, of course, that explains why, you know, the Pink Advocate has some of the best reporting within the LGBTIQ press or media here in Australia on sexual health issues. That's very kind of you to say. Yeah, there are definitely areas that are very close to my heart. I've worked in those fields for a number of years and my background is in public health going way back. So it is really important for me to be reporting on sexual health, among other things, for the LGBTIQ community. Absolutely, absolutely. So what are some of the other issues that we can expect you to be reporting on in The Pink Advocate? Well, uh, with the US election campaign, I've been following that a little. And so there's been a whole heap of LGBTIQ-related news coming out of that. Um, one of the more recent things is there was a really weird, nasty um, memo from a US government department that was leaked. I don't know if you saw that one about how to spot a trans person, which was gross in itself, but the purpose of it was to keep trans women out of homeless shelters, which was just really awful. We've got some really cool features coming up as well. Just a couple of days ago, I've spoken to a new friend in Adelaide who is, I'm going to get this wrong because I don't know anything about sport, uh, the first trans man in Australia to play front row in rugby. Does that sound like the right word? Who knows? <laughs> but uh, the first trans man to play in, uh, in a particular capacity in rugby in Australia, which is very exciting. And he's got a very 
inspirational story to share. I'm looking forward to publishing that shortly. Um, and again, in sports, I uh, spoke recently to somebody who's organising the first World Gay Boxing Championships, which is coming up in a couple of years' time, promoting the world's first gay boxing championship, uh, which sounds like it's going to be really exciting as well. Had me halfway inspired to get into boxing. Probably not going to happen. Oh, wow. So that, that story uh, sounds amazing. Tell us more about that. Oh, well, the uh, person that I spoke to uh, named Martin was telling me back when I spoke to him originally that he'd been getting into boxing just himself personally, but had noticed that there wasn't like a big culture of uh, gay boxing. He wasn't seeing a whole lot around like on social media, not a lot on the gay boxing hashtag on Instagram. And the more he looked into it, the more he wanted to do something himself. So he's, he started organising uh, a group of people from the gay community to get together and train together with a view to having this massive World Gay Boxing Championship that's going to be very exciting by the sounds of it, uh, intended to be gender inclusive. So trans people, intersex people, anybody else will be welcome to come along and compete. I'm with you. I would have thought it would have been more popular than why it is. I wonder, I wonder why it isn't. Yeah, and I, I guess in different parts of the world there's some interest. He was telling me there's a trans-inclusive boxing club in New York City, I think. Uh, but here in Australia, not so much. Of course, uh, you're no stranger to Victoria, and in fact you were born down here and recently you went on a journey to have the correct gender put on your birth certificate. Can you tell us about that journey and that process? Yeah, that's right. I was born in Melbourne. Um, I've been in Queensland since I was a kid, many years now. Um, changed my name a number of times, but my latest adventure with uh, births, deaths and marriages was finally getting around to changing the sex marker on my birth certificate, which I hadn't particularly intended to do necessarily. Um, but as some people will know, the law changed uh, something like a year or so ago to allow people who uh, change to allow people to change the gender marker regardless of whether they've had surgery uh, and also to change your gender marker to whatever you like within reason, which is really exciting in particular. Uh, so I've changed my gender marker just to say male, but if I'd wanted it to say something a bit different, if I wanted a, a certificate that said genderqueer or something, so far as I'm aware, that sort of thing's allowed as well now, which is really cool. Is there much of a campaign for uh, this this same kind of reform in Queensland? Where's that at? Oh, definitely. There's still a handful of states in Australia where you have to effectively be sterilised surgically before you can change the sex on your birth certificate, which is quite outrageous. Um, when we hear that sort of thing about other countries, people are outraged and don't necessarily realise that we require the exact same thing here. So it would be really nice to see the other states come into line and stop enforcing this really nasty uh, requirement to, to go about changing your paperwork. And that was Jesse Jones, the editor of the queer news publication, The Pink Advocate. 
Yeah, I spent three and a half years living on the street and I know what it's like to have no hope and not to feel a part of the society and I think that's where a lot of these people are. But I think we need to help people who are traumatised and help people get back on their feet and give them hope and help them um, feel like they're a part of the society again instead of just moving them on like they're an inconvenience. If it were not for ruminations, how would the views of those of us who have been homeless or are homeless, how would these views ever be aired? How would they ever be expressed? Subscribe to the station that gives airtime to people with a lived experience of homelessness. Support 3CR. One day There'll be a place for us.
And that was PJ Harvey with A Place Called Home. We also heard from Prince with Pink Cashmere. I'm out of here. Jacob's up next with a Friday rave. Taking this out is Kate Bush with Moving. And we'll catch you next week on In Your Face. Yeah.